appropriate song to end with, Carmel. I didn't know you were ending with that song, but that'll it ties in very wonderfully with this uh, portion of Scripture. Uh, I want you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation chapter 1, and at the same time we'll let the uh, children be dismissed. <coughs> so if you can just turn to Revelation chapter 1. I want you to turn with me to verse 12 of Revelation 1. Last book in the Bible if you need any help with that. In light of what we have just been singing about the glorious name of Christ and acknowledging Him as our incredible Savior and Lord, I give you these words which are the context for the discussion that we will have this morning. Verse 12, Revelation 1, in the book that is called The Revelation of Jesus Christ that was given to John. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Among the lampstands, someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace. His voice like the sound of many rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Out of his mouth came a double-edged sword. His face was like the sun. Shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. This is the one that speaks to us, to the church, in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. The picture... When you read this, you say, okay, I don't have anything in my mind that I can relate that to. Those figures, those metaphors, those analogies stretch my imagination. They take me beyond what I'm used to seeing or hearing. But one thing becomes very clear as you read through this text. The one who is speaking is majestic, awe-inspiring, at some level fear-inspiring, compelling, authoritative, sovereign, creator, over all things. And as you follow along in the text, you understand very clearly that he is the one who was dead and is now alive, which draws a clear reference to the person of Christ as the individual that is being spoken about and that is speaking in this passage of Scripture. He is addressing his church, in this context, seven letters to seven churches to help them to overcome and stay firm until the end written to people who have been deeply affected by the grace of God. They are His bride, His church, the love of His life. And He speaks to them. At the beginning of chapter 2, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. So now Christ speaks to the angel and says, record this through John as a letter that will go to my bride, the church. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. If you've done any study on this text, you know that the seven golden lampstands are symbols of the seven churches that are being written to. And the idea of the lampstand probably, almost certainly, I think, ties back to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16. The message to the church, you are the light of the world. 
You are Christ's representative. John chapter 7 and 8 talks about Christ being the light of the world. When he goes, the church is called the lampstand of God in the world. So our position is to be brilliant lights for the glory and honor of the King of Kings who called the church into existence and has every right to govern the affairs of his church. And so he writes to his church. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them to be false. You have persevered and adored hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet, I hold this against you, this indictment, this charge, this critique. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear to hear, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. And to him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Edmund Burke made this statement. He said, very seldom does a man take one giant step from a life of virtue and goodness into a life of vice and corruption. Very seldom does a man take one giant step from a life of virtue and goodness into a life of vice and corruption. Usually, he begins his journey into evil by taking little steps into the shaded areas, areas tinted and colored just a bit, almost unnoticed by those around him. All of us have a battle to fight. And the battle is to, in some way, mute the effect and call of the world to us. To somehow silence the allure of the world that we live in so that we can live as fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. We are under constant pressure, Romans 12, 1 says, to be conformed to the image of this world. We live in a world that wants us to be like them. Your kids experience this pressure. You as an adult experience this constant. It just There's this weight that you have to resist in the power of the Spirit of God to stay and to remain the people, the church, the individuals that God so gloriously desires for us to be. The pressure that we experience to conform to change is constant. The drift in our lives is almost always incremental. Barely noticeable, barely measurable. This year, I, for the first time, I think in probably 18 years, planted a garden. And it's a great thing to do, right? I mean, when you till the fresh soil at the beginning of the season, you smell broken up earth. I remember as a, as a teenager, I worked on a dairy farm. I remember going out with a 30-20 John Deere tractor. Uh, automatic, everything hydraulic. If it shut off, you had no brakes, you had nothing, okay? I used to love taking that tractor out. Go out into the field and breaking up soil at the beginning of the season, just full of exhilaration and joy. Love the smell of dirt, just freshly broken up. When I started my garden this year, I had that privilege. Had the privilege of sowing seeds into the garden. 
privilege of planting plants in the garden. And it's all just so exhilarating and exciting at the beginning. Right? It's just a cause for great joy. And then something starts to happen really slowly. And it usually takes about a month. The plants are, if you do lettuce, all your lettuce is growing and harvested, you're just thinking, no problem. Everything's going great. And then you start to get those rains, latter part of June, and crabgrass decides to want to peek its head out of the ground. And every, all the seeds that are embedded in that lovely soil of your garden begin to sprout. And I've, I've had to alter my lifestyle because of this garden. Okay? I planted the garden. Guess what's happening? The garden is controlling me. Okay? Every morning now, I get up very early. And I usually get up early anyhow, but I go out and I spend a little bit of time tending to the things that want to bring down my garden and make it less productive than it could be. If I don't go out to my garden for about three weeks, here's what I tell you will happen. I will find a rototiller and bury my entire garden. Okay, I don't like things messy in my life, so I have this thing. It's just got to be kept neat. And the best way to keep it neat and make it incredibly productive and attractive is what? Daily maintenance. It doesn't hurt me to go out there and pick weeds for 10 minutes. It kills me to spend two hours picking weeds. If you don't, if you don't maintain things like that, what happens? The alien things take over. They always, alien things in your life, will always kill the beauty of your life. And will always kill the productivity of your life. You have to maintain the garden of your heart. And if you don't, the evil one will come and sow tares, as Jesus told us. And he will seek to bring down the beauty and productivity of your life. Unless you heed the words of the one who called you into his kingdom and established us in this context as a local assembly. He wants us to be vigilant about maintaining a vital relationship of love with him so that incrementalism, the encroachment of the world and its pleasures into our lives and into our thinking and into our values doesn't end up all of a sudden just it, it, in gardens and flower beds. It's like this. All of a sudden you look and you're like, I did not even see that weed coming. I have weeds because I'm not taking care of my flower beds now. I have weeds coming out of some of my shrubs that are four or five feet high. And you know what? I never saw them start. But I ignored my flower beds because I've been taking care of my garden. Guess what? If you come to my house tonight for when Marie and Ruth and Jessica show their uh, slides from India, you're going to see the effects of incrementalism. Come to the back door. Right? Don't go to my front door. Because my flower beds look like a disaster right now. Why? Because incrementally things have started to grow up and alter the beauty and steal the joy of, for me, walking down my front sidewalk. I just don't want to go there. Why? It looks horrible. It's embarrassing. Same thing happens in our spiritual life. Very seldom, Edmund Burke says, does a man jump from virtue to vice. But probably every Christian in this room can find an area in their life at some point along the journey where you have found yourself involved in things that you never thought could find a place in your heart. Same thing is true in the context of marriage. Here's the simple truth, Carmelo and Christian. Since in six days you guys get married. Here's the simple truth. 
A great marriage is a possibility. It is not impossible. But it will cost you. It will take hard work to maintain the garden of your marriage. And every bride on her wedding day is radiant with beauty and with incredible possibilities. But we all know in the context of those vital relationships, it takes work to maintain. And it is possible to maintain it. A lot of times, it seems like we talk about it with this very negative predisposition. I want to tell you is it is possible to maintain a loving relationship with your mate for life, for the glory of God. But it will cost you. But it will be, as we'll see at the end of this text, it will be well worth the effort that you put forth. A Christian young person never goes to college with the desire to fall into sin. They usually go aware of the battles that they will face. They're committed to standing tall and true. But suddenly they find themselves in places that they should not be in. Failing to maintain a close relationship with the local church and with Christian friends where accountability is present. And failure to cultivate those vital relationships leads to spiritual isolation incrementally. And suddenly there is this non-discernible, then suddenly discernible change. The difference between them as a Christian who loves Christ and everybody else evaporates. It happens in gardens, it happens in homes, it happens for young people. And the question I want to put for you th- before you this morning is how do we fend off and fight off the incremental effects of worldliness, of just the simple pressure to conform? How do we resist the abundant pressure that comes against the life, not only of teenagers as we often talk about it, but also against our lives as adults? From this text, I make three simple observations, then four applications. First of all, this. It is possible for your passion for Christ to fade. Okay, sometimes you just need to re-up an acknowledgement of this very simple fact. It is possible that my deep love and appreciation and passion for Christ can fade. That's what this text is saying. It's written to a church that by and large stands very, very tall. Jesus can say to this church, I know your deeds, generally speaking, you are living a fundamentally effective Christian life. I know your perseverance. They had hung in there in the midst of suffering that you and I have never thought of experiencing. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men. You vigilantly maintain purity. I know your perseverance. I know that you have tested those who say that they are teachers that represent God, but are not. They were able to effectively discern that when someone was speaking in the congregation, that what they were saying was not coming from the heart of Christ. They were attuned to truth. They were active servants at some level. But folks, please understand this. It is possible for me to function in the context of my marriage, doing all the right things, coming home on cue, dutifully giving the flowers that I'm supposed to give, remembering my wife's birthday with the help of a friend, okay? Dave Rader called me the other day and said, remember, it's your wife's birthday, okay? Which I was grateful for. I actually was close to remembering, okay? Then fully, I was real close to remembering, and then it all came back. And then remembered Bobby trusted Christ on July 15th, three years ago, on my wife's birthday.
it is possible for us to get many things right in our Christian walk and find that our love for Christ is dying. My biggest fear for people that grow up in a Christian home like I did is the effects of incrementalism, which is undetectable. Why? Because I still walk in the door of the church. I still may even pick up my Bible and read it. But if my heart is not filled with a fresh, renewed passion for Christ on a regular basis, incrementalism will devour my love for Christ. Folks, look, what Christ wants you to do is not to walk in that door on Sunday morning. So you're a pastor saying that? Yes. Okay. It's not all that He wants you to do. He doesn't want you to come in here and dutifully give Him the bouquet of songs. He doesn't want your words. He does not want your presence. Men, it's not what your wife wants. What they want is a relationship. And what Christ wants in eternity is a relationship with you. He has rescued you from your sin, destroyed your rebellion, so that you could serve Him and honor Him and love Him. Understand this. When He says to the church, I have this against you, your passion for me is fading. What He is saying is this, I am jealous for your love. I want a deep relationship with you that is vital to your very existence. I can come here on Sunday morning and preach out of duty. I can do it for that reason. It scares the daylights out of me. I can be a pastor simply because it's what I'm paid to do. It is my responsibility to do that. When it should be our passion. And so I, I just give you this challenge. It is possible for your love for Christ to fade just like it is possible for you to dutifully do all the things that you should do in your life and not really love the people around you. May God help us to have hearts that are vigilant about maintaining our passion for Christ. And notice how Jesus says it to them. Beginning of verse 5, he says, Remember the height from which you have fallen. This is the word that struck me this morning as I was reviewing. Hey, remember the height from which you have fallen. Have you ever said this after an experience, an event? It may be even a worship event that you've attended. Or it may be a wedding that you attended. Or just something glorious. World Cup soccer, some of you. I know Ryan Duvenek, he gets off on that. That gets him up there, okay? You ever said, boy, I was on such a high when I walked out of there, or after that game, it was so great. You ever say that? That's the thought that came to my mind when I read this. Remember the heights are talking about glory, exaltation. Remember how you reveled in Christ. How Christ was the source of your joy and satisfaction. So many other things want to creep in incrementally into your life. It's why, folks, when I'm talking about the issue of material possessions and income-related issues, that we get the focus right, that we don't let those other passions incrementally rise to a level that causes Christ to decrease in our lives. He aims to be the joy of your life. He aims to be your soul satisfaction. That is His desire. He wants to pour Himself fully into your life. So that you can enjoy a relationship with Him that is actually, a, absolutely transformational. In incrementalism, it's something like this. The symptoms. The unthinkable becomes tolerable or palatable. It becomes reasonable and often the unthinkable will become explainable. Ultimately, it will become justifiable. 
And when you are there, you are in a critical location in your Christian experience. When what is wrong becomes justifiable, your love for Christ is nigh unto death. And we must be vigilant to watch over our hearts, to guard our hearts, and to maintain this issue of first love. I ask you this question this morning. How is your passionate love life with Christ? Do you, do I, need to admit to God that incrementally my passion for Christ has been fading? I just, I put that question before you. To the church in Ephesus, Jesus could say, yes, 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 but your first love, your passion for me, the heights of exaltation and glory have begun to fade. He calls this church to account. Second thought simply is this. It is possible, and this is what I think is so glorious from this text, because you could think he is really hitting them hard. But listen to this. It is possible for my love to fade. It is also possible to restore my first love. Okay, now notice what the text says. Remember the height from which you were fallen, which simply is this. Remember what it was like at the beginning. Always go back and revisit the origin of your Christian experience. Go back. For me, I go back to when I was 21 years old and God confronted me in my rebellion. When I saw it for what it was, which was a day of fascinating, it was a day of serious breaking and wounding and it was a day of glorious restoration. And to the church, Jesus says, remember the height from which you have fallen. Remember what it used to be like Repent and do the things that you did at first. Which means there is something about the attitudes, the actions, the disciplines of the early Christian experience that are to be maintained throughout your Christian experience. Rejoicing in what Christ has done for you. Being astonished at His grace. It's why the Apostle Paul at the end of his life could say, I am the chiefest of sinners who was rescued by the grace of God. Paul seemingly never got over that conviction. He kept going back, expressing deep gratitude. He writes it and records it under the inspiration of the Spirit in Scripture for us. He maintained, just vigilantly remembered what he was without Christ and was always just so incredibly grateful. That's why we're going to celebrate the Lord's table this morning, isn't it? You know why we do this on a right? You know why once a year is not enough? Because I'm stupid, okay? I am stubborn. I am distracted easily. And the reason God wants us to celebrate what Christ did for us on the cross on a regular basis is because that is where the height of joy is experienced. And it is a height that we don't climb to. It is a height that He brings us to as we surrender to His glorious love and power that sustains and forgives us every day of our lives. The problem is that we often forget the glory of the cross. To repent means this. It means to acknowledge my rebellion and to experience a change of direction in my life. This change is never subtle. Repentance is never a subtle experience. It is a strong and radical experience. And Jesus is calling this church, in terms of its love, to do an about-face. Something similar to what happened to the prodigal son. In his deep rebellion, what did he begin to experience? Absolute loss. Deep sorrow. 
that provoked him to think about the height from which he had fallen. As he just messes in the slop and eats with the pigs and experiences the abandonment of all of his friends, what happens? There is this light that turns on inside of his head. And what does he say? My father's servants have it better than me. And you know what he does? He makes a decision to put his, the, the car of his life into reverse. He moves away from his rebellion and moves back towards his father. And what happens when he gets there? He finds a father waiting to rejoice over him with singing. That's what he finds. So his first love for his father fades. The effects of his incremental change in his life leads to absolute devastation, but not hopelessness. Why? Because he had a dad who somehow, in his heart, he knew, if I reverse the course of my life, my father will receive me, and, but the father goes much further, doesn't he? He brings into his life a radical restoration that is a result of him simply repenting. But he couldn't stay in the faraway land and repent. The repentance meant a radical transformation, a change of direction in his life, and a moving back into the place of incredible and rich blessing. His simple cry to his father was this, I am unworthy to be called your son. I don't deserve your love. Just let me serve you. Now, this morning, here's the question I ask you. What step does God want you to take today? For the prodigal son, here's what he did. He got up and he reversed the course of his life. He saw where incremental rebellion and in a sense flagrant rebellion at the beginning had taken his life. Was he happy? No. Why? He left his first love. He left the source of hope in his life. What was he thinking? If I get away from the restraints of my father's authority, what will I experience? I'm going to have freedom. And I'm going to have money. And I'm going to have joy. Did he have that? The answer is absolutely yes. But was it abundant joy? Was it sustainable joy? Well, that's what the evil one wants us to think, doesn't he? He tempts us with the things of this world to cause us to think that those things will produce some type of lasting joy. But what he really is doing is incrementally moving you away from the source of joy. And when that son realized what he had done, he does an about face. Same thing that the Savior recommends to the church in Ephesus. Repent and do the things that you did at first. Repentance is this. It is hard work. That, however, leads to great delight. Folks, do you understand this? If you know Christ, Father is waiting for you. He is waiting for you. And he gives you the illustration of one of the worst sons in history, the prodigal son. Known across the world as the rebel that rejected his father's love. But who had a dad who had a love for him that was unbelievable and unkillable. It was a love that was sustained. And when he came to his senses, he got up and ran to his father. Understand this. The depth of your brokenness determines the height of your growth and joy in Christ. You know what we tend to do? We tend to practice a very anemic form of repentance that is not in any way radical and life-changing. We play at confession. We don't go deep with God to the root cause of our rebellion. And the result is that we 
probably for many of us, rarely and truly repents. Because true repentance will always lead to what? A radical life change. May God help us as we consider this issue of incremental change in our hearts and how do we get back? What we must do is experience a radical repentance that will lead to the restoration of our first love. And the third thought is this. Jesus says to this church, he says, repent, experience an about face and do the things that you did at first. Okay, get back to the basics of your Christian life. Cultivate on a daily basis. Just like I go out to my garden each morning, spend 10 minutes just getting things in a right place. Get with God on a regular basis and begin to maintain your first love for Christ. So the third thought is this. It is crucial that I maintain my first love, that I reignite this first love, which will require intention, effort, choice and sacrifice on a regular basis it's why when jesus addresses the disciples he says if you want to come after me in a wholehearted sort of way you must and luke inserts the word daily you must deny yourself daily take up your cross daily and follow me daily okay it it is not about me simply making a choice and then everything is fine on marriage day i made a commitment to you for the rest of my life therefore i stay will stay with you for the rest of my life no it requires more than a simple decision at a certain date it requires a life change and that life change will require that it be maintained that you spend time with god on a regular basis that you begin to be a christian who experiences joy in the word of god that you would be a christian who carves out time in your life to seek the face of god that you become diligent about maintaining your first love. You might say this morning, Tim, how do I do that? Let me just give you these simple thoughts. Number one, daily cultivate the soil of your heart by listening to God. I think one of the fascinating things about this text is to a church that has lost its passion for God, he says, to this church, I am speaking. These are the words of him. Folks, you serve a God who speaks. He speaks through His Word and He speaks to His children by His Spirit. Are you, am I, listening as He speaks and as He provokes and encourages and calls? He is a God who entreats you and speaks to you. And the idea, I think, very clearly is as He speaks, remember the height from which you have fallen. I can hear that, but I must be responsive to what He is saying. Secondly, Daily feed your heart on the truth of God's word and, on, and through your personal relationship with Christ. In the garden, here's what I do. I add fertilizer and I add water. Why? Because they are the nutrients that God has so directed to bring blessings in the realm, uh, in the organic realm, in the, in the bio realm. Okay? In our spiritual life, God has given us additives that need to be poured into our lives on a daily basis that will rekindle and cause growth in our lives And in our hearts. Daily feed your heart. Third, daily identify and destroy everything that is alien to a life of a Christian. Daily seek out and destroy everything that is alien. The idea flows out of the idea of repentance here. Take radical steps in your life to fight sin. Isn't this what Jesus means in Matthew chapter 7 when he says, If your eye offends you, do what with it? Not rub it. 
Okay, if your eye offends, you do what? Pluck it out. If your right hand offends, you do what? Cut it off. What is he saying? Well, we know that it's at some level figurative, analogous to something. What is he saying? Take radical steps to fight everything that will kill your love for God. So the question is this. What radical steps do I need to take that can be characterized by true brokenness and repentance in order to see my first love for Christ revived? What radical steps? Okay, let's make it personal. What issue are you struggling with in your life today that you need to address to be a follower of Christ? He is a God who speaks. If you know him personally, I can guarantee you this. You have been hearing from him. In your rebellion, he, look, he is the hound of heaven. And in your rebellion, he is jealous for your faithfulness and loyalty and commitment. Do we love the hound of heaven who comes and convicts and breaks us? No, okay. Do you love the results? My answer is, oh yeah. When God comes and shows an area that he wants to radically change and then begin to restore joy in our lives in that area, it is a glorious thing. Is the process comfortable and enjoyable? The answer is no. Is it necessary? Yes. What kind of a father brings that kind of discipline and correction? A loving father who wants to restore you. And so if you know him, here's my promise, he will speak to you. And he will come hard after you. And the warning is strong, isn't it? Jesus says, if you don't repent, I will take stronger action. I will remove your lampstand. Now that is a warning that emerges in the text that should cause us to be vigilant about confronting the demon of incrementalism in our spiritual life. Because we know what incremental compromise and sin can do to our spiritual life. It will kill your joy with things that promised you joy. You will acquire what you went after, but you will find that it cannot satisfy. Why? Because only Jesus truly satisfies. Listen as he speaks to you. Take radical steps to fight sin daily in your life with the understanding of the warning. If you do not repent, I will come. And remove your candlestick. The last thought that leads us into communion this morning, I think very simply, is this. Daily, revisit the cross as a matter of first importance. Folks, if my love for Christ has faded, where will I find it rekindled? Well, here's what I believe. I believe you will find it rekindled at the place where it is most clearly displayed and proclaimed. 1 Corinthians 15.3 says, Paul, I gave to you as of first importance this message, that Christ died for our sins, was buried, and rose again on the third day. This love for Christ, this passion that he desires us to have for him and enjoy in and through him, is found very clearly, and I believe most powerfully and most profoundly, at the foot of the cross. So 1 John 3.16 says this, This is how we know what love is. Jesus laid down his life for us and we ought to, as a result of seeing that kind of love, lay down our lives for the brothers. 1 John 4 and verse 9. 
This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as a wrath-removing sacrifice for our sin. Romans 5.8 God showed His love to us in this. When I was a rebel, Christ died for me. And folks, what God wants to do, I believe, is this. He wants us to enjoy a love relationship with Him that goes beyond our expectations in terms of the joy that it promotes in our hearts. It is possible for that love to fade. It is possible to restore that love. When that love is restored, it must be maintained by daily habits of the Christian experience. And I love the way this text ends. It says, To him who overcomes incrementalism and the effects of the world that creeps into our lives and steals our joy, to the one who overcomes, who stays true, and who loves God with all his heart, soul, and mind, her heart, soul, and mind, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now that thought to me is astonishing. Why? Because when I go back to the Garden of Eden, I find a tree called the tree of life. And when I come to the Garden of God in the book of Revelation, here's what he's saying. It is in the paradise of God. It is in the place where when you arrive there, all other desires will seem absolutely and utterly foolish. All other pursuits will seem foolish <clears throat> in light of the glory that is to be revealed when He comes. To the one that overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life. It is in the paradise of God. It is in a place that is inexplicably glorious and wonderful. What do we trade it for? We trade it for trinkets. We trade it for lesser things. Lesser things that cause our love and passion for Christ to fade. And the result is that our connection with Christ begins to fade away. Our life for Christ begins to fade away. Is there hope? The answer is yes. Our love for Christ can be restored by taking very simple steps to listen to the voice of God, feed your heart with the Word of God, destroy everything in your life that is alien to love for God, everything that is contradictory to love for God, put it out of your life, and let the Spirit of God to begin to fill you with the joy and presence of Christ. If you cultivate and protect your love for Christ, here I think is the awesome truth. It will protect every other relationship in your life. You see, we tend to compromise because we want relationships with people. Here's the truth. If I stoke my love for Christ, cultivate the garden of my spiritual life, it is the greatest blessing that I can give to anyone in my sphere of influence. Do you see? What we tend to do is compromise. And Jesus says, don't compromise, love me. Do everything I tell you to do. And as you do, you will bring, Dad, understand this. If you cultivate your love for Christ, you will bring the greatest joy into your home that you could possibly give. If you cultivate and stoke your love for Christ, your wife will be the happiest person on the planet. Your kids will have the best mom on the planet. If you say, you know what, I am going to decide to go hard after God and to maintain a relationship with Him. And as you do it, I've watched this personally, young people will bring great joy to their parents. Most kids think, you know what, we're just a bit of a problem for a small period of time in their life. I want to tell you something. When a parent sees their child fully in love with Christ, it is a powerful thing. 
And so folks, look. The world around us is watching. They see incrementalism in our lives. And it's disturbing to them because it doesn't line up with what they hear about Christ. Would you this morning have the courage to go to Christ and say, Lord, I think there's some areas in my life that need a radical renovation. I think there are some plants growing in the garden of my life that need to be ripped out, roots and all. I need to experience a radical repentance in your presence. And folks, look, the reason we're celebrating the Lord's table today is number one, we seek to do it on a regular basis. Number two, Jesus told us to do this on a regular basis because He knew that we would need a regular, visible, tasteable reminder of His love and grace. When you partake of the Lord's Supper today, would you do this? Would you say, God, thank you that in your wisdom, you gave me a regular reminder of the place where your love is most clearly displayed for me through your Son, Jesus. And as you prepare your heart to partake of the elements that proclaim your salvation, your forgiveness, your grace that God is giving you, the hope of eternal life in the paradise of God, where you will partake of a tree that will give satisfaction, that will last forever, would you draw near to the cross? Would you be reminded of the incredible love that God has for you this day? And would we go from this place, having examined our hearts, confessed radically any sin that we need to confess, partaken of the elements that symbolize God's incredible love for us, and then go from here to say, God, I want you to be the first love of my life. Because when I do that, I will glorify Him and show that He satisfies more than anything else. And I will bring blessing into the sphere of all my relationships as I break the strongholds of sin in my life and begin to pursue a love life with Christ that will change my life, not only now, but in eternity. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Father.